0: So if you would please open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter six. Um, if you've been with us for the past couple months, you know that we've been going through the Ten Commandments, uh, which were originally given to the Israelites in Exodus 20. But here in Deuteronomy, Moses is retelling the law to the people as they're about to finally enter into the promised land. And much of the rest of the book of Deuteronomy is then an expansion on the Ten Commandments. And chapter six, is an expansion on the first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. And this chapter shows us that there is only one God, and it shows us how we are to live in light of that. So please follow along as I read Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over, to possess it. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the one true God. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to the truth of your word today. Help us to understand it and to receive it. Great is your name, O Lord, and worthy to be praised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, think about the most comfortable pair of shoes that you ever owned. I had this pair that I got when I was 16 years old, and I wore them probably every day for about 10 years. They were this brown pair of Vans, and they started out looking pretty nice, but by the end, they were all worn out. My mom is laughing because she knows what I'm talking about. Uh, But they were comfortable right to the end. Now, Think about the most stylish pair of shoes you've ever owned. Chances are, it's not the same pair as the most comfortable shoes. It seems like the nicer looking the shoe, the less comfortable they are. There's rarely any overlap between a shoe that's really comfortable and really stylish. Unless you buy it from Perry. <laughs> <laughs> now imagine that wasn't the case. Imagine that someone finally invented the perfect shoe. It's the most comfortable shoe you've ever worn. It's the most stylish shoe you've ever seen. It goes with any outfit. Foot pain is a thing of the past. They have lifetime guarantee. And best of all, they're free. Every other shoe looks ugly in comparison. Every other shoe is uncomfortable in comparison. In fact, all other shoe companies go out of business because no one wants their shoes anymore. There is now one shoe, and it is perfect, and it is free. Would you lament the fact that there's only now one shoe to choose from? Or would you welcome the fact that the perfect shoe is now yours? When something perfect exists, there's no need for any other option. You'd have to be a fool to desire any other option. In fact, any other option would be objectively worse for you. And we don't do that, right? We're not foolish. We don't pursue imperfect things more than the one perfect God, right? We're Christians. Well, I wish that was true, but the truth is we all have idols in our lives. We all pursue imperfect things to find our ultimate worth and fulfillment rather than loving our one perfect God. There's always something out there that we trick ourselves into thinking that we need. If I could just have such and such, everything would be okay. If I could just have a 10% raise. If I could just lose a little weight. If I just had a bigger kitchen if I just had a boyfriend or girlfriend, if this one thing was different, I would finally be happy and content. And even if it's not necessarily a sinful thing that you're wishing for, if you're putting all your hope into it, it is an idol. Even good things become idols when we make them our ultimate things. We consistently put on the ugly, uncomfortable shoe when the perfect one is right there waiting for us. We wander from God. We don't believe that he is perfect and that he is enough for us. As John Calvin said, our hearts are idle factories. But as we'll see in our text today, there is only one true God. And because there is no other God, we should love him completely. And there are three ways that our text are going to show us how we should love him. First, we should learn his law. Second, we should obey his law. And third, we should teach his law. Learn, obey, and teach. So first, because there is no other God, we should learn his law. In verses 1 through 3, Moses sets the table for all the instruction that he's about to give to the Israelites. The first thing that he points out to them in verse 1 is that these statutes and rules that he's teaching them are coming from God himself. They're commandments that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. And verse 2 says, the point of this instruction is that the people would learn to fear the Lord by keeping his commandments. When scripture talks about fearing God, it's not talking about being scared of him. It's talking about a reverent love for God. And Moses is saying that to fear the Lord, to love the Lord, is to keep his commandments. Moving on to verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This verse is known as the Shema, which is Hebrew for the word hear. And it's a clear statement that there is only one God. See, the people are about to enter the promised land where it's filled with people who worship many gods, which is kind of like our culture today. And Moses is reminding them not to wander from the one true God, even if everyone around them already has. Well, he continues with another well-known verse, which is known as the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Jesus himself cites this command as the most important commandment in all of the law. And these words are important enough that Moses goes on to show just how central they should be in our lives. He says these words should be on our hearts, that we should teach them to our children, talk about them at every opportunity, bind them as a sign on our hand, and write them on our doorposts. Those who love the Lord are to learn his laws, to meditate on them, talk about them, and read them. These words are central to the Christian faith. They are central to our relationship with God. To neglect his commandments is to neglect our relationship with him. One of my childhood friends growing up, he loved everything to do with the Titanic. Not the movie, the actual boat. He knew everything about it. He knew how it was made, how it crashed, the dimensions of it, everything. And sometimes, it was kind of fun to quiz him on it. We would ask him how many windows the Titanic had, or how many survivors there were, and he always had the answer. We could never stump him. It was kind of fun to put his knowledge to the test sometimes. Other times, though, the kid just wouldn't stop talking about it. (laughs) He would go on and on about the Titanic at recess, at lunch, the bus stop. And I loved the guy, but I didn't want to hear any more about the Titanic. I didn't care how many tons of coal it burned every day, how much food was on board. Who cares? The fact is that my friend loved the Titanic and he simply couldn't keep it to himself. And he didn't know what to do with that love other than to pour himself into it, to read everything about it, to talk to anyone about it who would listen or pretend to listen. (laughs) The problem was that no one else had any reason to share his his enthusiasm. Well, verse 5 says that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and might. Kind of like my friend with the Titanic. But what's our reason for doing so? Why should we put him above all other desires in our life? Why should we learn his laws and talk about his laws with such enthusiasm? Well, We're told why in verse 4. The Lord our God, the Lord is one we are to love the lord with all our heart soul and might because he is one there's a reason why the israelites are always looking back on their history they're always reflecting back to the exodus to the covenants that god made with them to all the ways that god has taken care of them throughout time and it's not because it's just interesting history The history of God's redemptive work isn't like the history of the Titanic, something that was interesting that happened long ago and is done. No, the Israelites reflect back on their history with God because the story isn't over yet. If you want to know what God is like and what he thinks of you, just look at what he's done in the past, in your own life, and more importantly, throughout Scripture. The fact that God is one doesn't just mean that there's only one God, but it also means that he doesn't change. The same God who delivered his people from slavery in Egypt is the same God who's doing a work in all of you right now. He doesn't change from the Old Testament to the New Testament. He is consistently good and merciful and patient with us. You know, something I found interesting in this text is the order of the commands in verses 6 through 9. He says to teach these words to your children, talk about them all the time, write them on your doorposts, and so on. But what comes before all that? What's the first command? Verse 6 says, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. God wants us to learn his law, but he also wants us to love his law. One commentator put it this way. External performance cannot substitute for inner vitality. Learning the law is more than just memorization and study, but it takes dwelling on the beauty of God and the saving work of Christ and letting that change you from the inside out. Only the God who loves us enough to send his son to die in our place is worthy of that kind of love. We need to learn his law because there is no other God. But not only should we learn his law, we should obey his law. In verses 10 through 12, Moses basically tells them, when you get to the promised land, don't forget the Lord. Don't think that just because you've arrived that you don't need him anymore. In verse 13, he again reminds them to fear the Lord. And again, he ties obeying The Lord to fearing or loving the Lord. It is the Lord your God you shall serve. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods. Well, the the often quoted great 20th century theologian Bob Dylan said, You got to serve somebody. God created us for worship. And if we're not worshiping and serving God, we're going to find someone else or something else to serve and worship. In verses 14 through 19, Moses teaches them that God's commandments, they come with both the carrot and the stick. Go after other gods and there will be dire consequences. But love the Lord and obey him and it will go well with you. Love for God and obedience to God, they're talked about as practically the same thing. It's kind of like a square and a rectangle. A square is a rectangle, but a rectangle isn't necessarily a square. You can obey God's commands without loving him, like the Pharisees, but you can't love God without obeying him. And throughout the book of Deuteronomy, we see this constant connection between love and obedience. Jesus himself said in John 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Years ago, I was reading a book that was written by a pastor that was kind of an eye-opener in my walk with Christ. And one part of the book that I'll always remember is he tells a story about a young, newly married couple. And the husband got off work early one day, and he decides to go home and kind of sneak into the house to see what his wife is up to. So he tiptoes through the hallway, and peeks around the corner, and he sees her setting the table for dinner, for the two of them. And he sees that she has two two two-liter bottles of soda. One of them is a bottle that they opened a couple days ago. It has a little bit of flat soda left on the bottom. And then she has a fresh bottle of soda. And he wants to see, who is she going to give that flat soda to? (laughs) Me or herself? Well, without knowing that he's watching her, she pours the flat soda into her own glass, gives him the fresh soda, and never mentions it throughout dinner. She simply wanted her husband to have the best because she loved him. And I, I just, I remember reading this and just thinking how sweet that was and how that's something that my wife then my fiancé would do for me. And it made me think about how such a sacrifice on her end makes me want to serve her, to do good things for her. But then it hit me. If Tracy's small, hypothetical sacrifice of giving me good soda makes me want to serve her, how much more should Christ's very real sacrifice make me want to serve him? If you have trusted in Christ, you have been given the ability to obey him. And what's more, love for Christ will make you want To obey him. Love for God, it isn't merely an emotion. It's not just warm fuzzies when you're singing worship songs or wearing a cross necklace, getting a Bible verse tattoo on your arm. Hear me, I'm not mocking those things. Those are all good things. But biblically speaking, love for God works its way out in obedience. And I get it. Obedience is a heavy word. It can feel like a burden. It can feel like just another thing to add to the checklist of being a good Christian. My to-do list is already a mile long. Now I have to add obedience. Well, if obedience to God feels like a burden to you, you are buying into the lies of the devil. Plain and simple. We all serve something. So let it be the one true God of the universe, the one who loves you enough to give his son's life for yours. His commands are not meant to enslave you, but to free you, to live as you were truly meant to live. It's why he attaches blessings to obedience. Living how you were designed to live has advantages. If you have confessed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God is for you. His commands are for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is only one true God and that his ways are truly good? If so, then put your money where your mouth is. Learn his laws and obey them. And if we believe that there is only one true God, then we must also teach his law. Moses continues by giving the people instruction for teaching the law to their children. So if you don't have kids or if you're empty nesters, you're free to leave. Be gone. This doesn't apply to you. That's a joke. If you don't have kids in your household, let me tell you something. You do have kids here in the household of God. And maybe you've heard that before. It might sound like a cute sentiment or a platitude, but this is serious. You might not all agree with how we do infant baptisms here, and that's okay, but I think we're all being sincere when we raise our right hands and we vow to help the parents in the raising and discipling of their children. And even if you've never made such a promise, you're still not off the hook. I know we live in Appleton where family is everything, And it's true, family is good. It's an important gift from God. But I'm going to say something that might be challenging for those of us who have grown up in the Fox Cities. Your biological family is not your first family. The family of God is. In Matthew 12, when Jesus was teaching crowds of people, his family came looking for him. And when it was told to him that his mother and brothers were looking for him, he said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. James K.A. Smith, who is a Christian author, he says that churches need to become communities in which the bloodlines of kin are trumped by the blood of Christ where natural families don't fold into themselves in self-regard. The church constitutes our first family. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The family is not constrained to biology and houses. The church is a family. And as a family, we have a special relationship with each other. And with that comes special responsibilities toward each other. For those of you who have never raised children, this passage is for you. For empty nesters, this passage is for you. Back to the passage. In verse 20, Moses begins by saying, When your son asks you in time to come what the meaning of the commandments are, Moses says, when your son asks you, not if. The implication is that if we are living according to God's commands, it will inevitably spark curiosity in our children. So when they ask the meaning of these commandments, uh, what it is, how does Moses instruct them to respond? Does he say, tell them these are the rules for being a good person? Does he say, just these are the laws, therefore obey them? No. No. He tells them to explain God's commands by talking about what God has done for them. And again, the connection is made between obedience and love. We keep these commands because God loves us. You want proof? Look at how he delivered us out of Egypt. Look at the land that he's brought us into. The pattern given for teaching the law to our children is first by telling them about God's love, the gospel, as our motivation for keeping the law. The Lord is one, and the goodness of his law, the goodness of his law, is to be made known to our children. Maybe you have something in your possession that used to belong to someone who's passed away. Could be jewelry, a book, some trinket, And those items that have been passed down to us from our parents or grandparents, they always mean so much to us. They're worth more to us than just their monetary value. And when you think about someday when you pass away where you want that item to go, chances are it would just make your heart sore if it went to your children or someone that you loved. Might be an item that has no real worth or practical use, but it's valuable to you because of who it came from because of your relationship with that person. And much more than passing down family heirlooms, how much more should we pass down God's law to our children? And the reason why is the same, because of who it comes from. Psalm 19, which we've been singing before the sermons, it says that the law of the Lord is more precious than gold. Passing down the law to our children is a far greater privilege than passing down any family heirloom. We'll get to it, Luke. How do we raise our children in the Lord? Well, let's look at the scripture. In verse 20, it says, to explain the meaning of the law when your child asks. So does that mean we should just sit back and passively wait for our children to ask? No. Go back to verse 7 earlier in the chapter and following. It says, teach the law to your children diligently. Several other Bible translations say to teach them repeatedly. The NIV says to impress them on your children. There is nothing passive about the ways that we should be teaching our kids about God. So what do we do? Family devotionals, family worship, reciting the catechism, reading scripture together, praying together, going to church, even when you have a good excuse not to? Well, yes, to all of those, and probably more. There is no magic formula that I can give you that you must follow. And no matter what you do, you're not going to be perfect at it. And that's okay. Start small. Ask your child some questions about their faith. You might be surprised where the conversation goes. Start praying before meals. Do a five-minute devotional. You can make the time. Start to make Jesus a member of your family. For those of you without kids in your home, have you asked yourself how you can play a part in discipling the kids in this church? Have you considered praying for them regularly? We tend to think about kids as the church of the future, but they're not. They are a part of the present church. They are the body of Christ. Have you considered volunteering to help teach them on Sunday mornings? or on Wednesday night in our upcoming ministries. I know that can sound intimidating or just unpleasant, (laughs) especially to those of you who don't have kids, but we can pair you up with experienced parents who can show you the ropes. And what's more, our kids need you. You are not here by mistake. Again, looking at verse seven, it says, Talk about these words when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Bind them on your hands and the frontlets of your eyes. Write them on your doorposts and gates. Parents, the way that you live your life is ultimately the best tool that you have in shaping your children. They will see what makes you upset, what makes you excited, how you spend your time and your money, they will see these things And they will learn from them, whether you intended them to or not. So make sure that what they're seeing is what's truly important. That Jesus is everything. That the trials of this world don't even compare to the glory that is to come. The point is this. Our kids are constantly being shaped by the things that they're doing and the people that they're spending time with. And we live in an increasingly secular culture one hour a week at church or hour and a half is not enough to shape our kids hearts there are a million other idols out there trying to seduce them and i'm not trying to be an alarmist i'm not saying we should retreat from culture but god created us to worship he created our kids to worship and god has given parents as the ones who spend the most time with their kids the ones who have the most influence over over them, and frankly, the ones who care about them the most. So the church, that's all of us, we have a special responsibility toward your kids, but you as parents also have a special and distinct responsibility towards your kids' spiritual development. You are in a position to shepherd your kids in a unique way that the church isn't. And if you feel like you can't do it, Just remember that God has chosen you specifically for the task, and he does not make mistakes. Our children are going to worship something, so let's make sure it's the one true God of the universe. C.S. Lewis once wrote in one of his sermons, Our desires are not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink, and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us. Like ignorant children who want want to keep on making mud pies in a slum because they cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. We settle for playing in the mud when God is calling us to something far greater. The perfect shoe doesn't exist, but the perfect God Does. So don't settle for anything less. Don't let your children settle for anything less. What God has to offer is better. There is no other God, so we must love Him completely by learning His law, obeying His law, and teaching His law. And it sounds like an impossible task, and it is impossible to do it perfectly. But there is one. Who did it perfectly. Jesus, God, humbled himself to a human form with a human mind. He learned the law as a boy. He obeyed the law his whole life. He taught the law to thousands. Jesus knew and experienced the law more than any of us could ever imagine. And what was his impression of it? What did he say about it? Was it a burden? To him? No. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The burden is light, because Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf and sacrificed himself for our sake. He says that it's actually those who don't know Christ, who don't love the law, who are labored and heavy laden. You want to love the Lord with your whole heart, soul, and strength? Stop holding anything back from him. Give him your whole life. Learn, obey, and teach his law. He will give you rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is none beside you. You alone are God. You are one. Help us to love you more fully. Give us hearts that desire to learn, obey, and teach your commands out of love for you. Lord, we cannot do this on our own. We pray that you would help us through the Holy Spirit to honor you in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.